welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. The Washington Post reported a year ago, September 2008, this story about a Down syndrome uh, son. His name was uh, Joseph. He was playing around in the backyard and over a sewage tank, which had an open place, two by two, and Thomas, or, or uh, yeah, Thomas fell into the sewage tank. And his father, Joseph, had just gone to church and come home, and he saw this happen, and he rushed outside and uh, jumped into the sewage to rescue his son, who was drowning. And so while his, the father was holding the sun up so that he could get air to breathe, the father was submerged in all of this sewage, trying to save his son's life. And finally, someone in the house called some rescue workers, and they came out after 15 or 20 minutes of this going on, and they were able to pull both of them out of the muck. And they rushed them to the hospital, and the son of 20 years old, Thomas, was alive, but the father died He drowned in the sewage, saving his son. True story, reported by the Washington Post. That father, to me, is a hero. Let's talk about the father of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, shall we? How many of you would like to have a new revelation of the father of Jesus Christ than what we have had? How many of you would like to have a different picture of him than what we have had? Jesus wants us to have a different picture of him. You know, Satan is becoming more and more astute with his propaganda campaign. He's trying to besmirch the character of the Father in every way possible. And so he has targeted this favorite word, that Jesus used to refer to God. Jesus' favorite word for God is my Father. And you know that as soon as Jesus zeroes in on seeking to reveal the truth about God, Satan comes along to try to readjust the picture to his liking so that people get a wrong view of God, don't they? Now, it's true that uh, some fathers have taken a licking uh, that they are getting and they, because they have uh, abandoned their wives and their children to fend for themselves. And uh, these fathers, I suppose we'd call them jerks, you know, and they've given father, the name father, bad name. And this leaves lasting scars upon the children as well as the abandoned ones. And furthermore, the Catholic Church has appropriated the term father for their celibate clergy. And there are not a few priests who have abused their positions of power behind the altar or in the convent. 
And then the feminist movement has done enough min-bashing to deconstruct the patriarchal society, and it has come to the point where even within churches, prayers are heard to the mother god. Mothers are viewed as the nurturing ones, the loving ones, and fathers are thought as thought of as being the distant ones, the unemotional ones, the unapproachable ones. And sometimes we humans have had earthly fathers who left us confused and bewildered at the word father. But you are aware, are you not, that it was Jesus' peculiar, particular mission to this earth to specifically reveal to us the family of God the divine family of God. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27. Jesus says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Uh, To me, this text is a marvelous instruction of the self-denial of Jesus and, as a consequence, a revelation of the self-denial of the Father. And to understand the principle of God the Father and God the Son as being the ultimate in self-denial, that is divine wisdom. Amen? To to revision God the Father and God the Son as the ultimate in self-denial is a revisioning of our picture of God the Father and God the Son. You see, everything is delivered into the hands of Christ. The Father has given everything to the Son. And what does the Son do with it? He uses that power only to reveal the Father. And he isn't interested at all in putting himself forward. And in so doing, he reveals who the Father is. We speak of knowing Christ, but in knowing him, we learn only about the character of the Father. In seeing him, we see God. Jesus said to Philip, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. John chapter 14 and verse 9. Jesus emptied himself that the Father might appear. In all of the universe, no one knows the Son except the Father. That was and is the sacrifice of Christ. Looking down upon fallen humanity, his heart was filled with love and pity, and he said to the Father, these are the words of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus said, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. I want them to know what your name is, Father. They don't know who you are. They've got all kinds of weird ideas about you. I will come and declare your name to my brethren. And so he was content 
Jesus, to be despised, to be unknown, to be misunderstood, to be rejected, without any complaints on his lips, without any self-pity, knowing that the Father alone understood it. The Father understood him. When God the Father was confronted with a world, and that is in Adam, that had sinned and that had rebelled against him, did God the Father drop an atom bomb on him? No. He did what the unfallen universe thought that he should have done, but he did the unthinkable. God the Father frankly forgave the world. And then he granted the sinners a judicial verdict of acquittal for their lifetime. Now, the Father was free to treat sinners as though they had never sinned, and the name for this action is called grace. Grace. Romans 5 describes what happened. In Romans 5, verse 15, the New English Bible translates, God's act of grace is all out of proportion to Adam's wrongdoing. For if the wrongdoing of that one man brought death upon so many, its effect is vastly exceeded by the grace of God and the gift that came to so many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. The marvelous gift of grace does not belittle the seriousness of sin that we have committed, the true dimension of the guilt of our sin is revealed on the cross in the murder of the Son of God, what kind of a sacrifice can balance the account of our guilt that means that someone holy, someone innocent must take our place, pay the price of guilt? This is a legal, a judicial verdict of acquittal that Christ accomplished for us and gave it to us as a gift And the Father so loved us that he gave his only Son to die our second death. And all he asks for us is to respond to it by the faith which he gives to us. He's given a measure of faith through every man to believe what he has done. And that word believe means to express a heartfelt appreciation for what it cost him to save us. And that heart appreciation melts the stony heart. It changes us. In other words, it converts us. It gives us the new birth. And the Bible is just simply saying, in believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it simply means, think of God. Think of God. And when we do, it's not to think of God as some kind of mere infinite electronic-like intelligence that pervades the universe, but we are to think of him as someone infinitely close to us and personal because that's why Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Matthew 6, verse 9. Now, there's a very clever, clever, intelligent enemy that has arisen within the universe who has challenged God the Father And the following are some of the charges and some of the accusations and insinuations that uh, Lucifer has uh, implied and uh, overtly charged God with in his rebellion in the great controversy. 
And those same accusations are echoed in every human heart, yours and mine. Number one, the basic charge is God is basically selfish. And haven't you thought that too? God is basically selfish. I'd like for you to look at an interesting text in Psalm 50 and verse 21. Psalm 50 and verse 21, in the middle of the verse says, You thought that I was altogether like you. And what am I? Selfish. You thought I was like that, like you. I'm going to rebuke that. He says, I'm going to show you a different picture than that. Ellen White says in Great Controversy, page 502, that Satan had accused God of seeking merely the exaltation of himself in requiring submission and obedience from his creatures and had declared that while the Creator acted, exacted self-denial from all others, he himself practiced no self-denial and made no sacrifice. The second accusation against God is God's law is unjust because it requires an obedience that is impossible to yield. Another accusation echoed by our own hearts is the divine government is responsible for sin. The divine government is responsible for the whole rebellion. Another one is that self-denial is impossible and therefore not essential for the human family. Another accusation against God is that angels and man need only do what they think is right without the restraints of God's law. And herein Ellen White says in Great Controversy, page 499, that he, the rebel, reiterated his claim that angels needed no control, but should be left to follow their own will, which would ever guide them right. He denounced the divine statutes as a restriction of their liberty and declared that it was his purpose to secure the abolition of law that freed from them this restraint, the hosts of heaven might enter upon a more exalted, more glorious state of existence. Satan has continued with men the same policy which he pursued with the angels. Another accusation of Satan echoed in men's hearts is that God's unjust restrictions led to man's fall in Eden. Great Controversy 500 says... By the same misrepresentation of the character of God as he had practiced in heaven, Satan induced man to sin, and having succeeded thus far, he declared that God's unjust restrictions had led to man's fall as they had led to his own rebellion. So God's responsible for sin because of his unjust restrictions. Another accusation echoed in our hearts is that the Father and the Son were the enemies of the angels and of men, and Lucifer is really our friend. He's on our side. Another one is that the Father is angry with sinners. His wrath would just wipe them out. And so, in view of that, Jesus offered himself up as the target of God's wrath on the cross in order to calm the anger of God down here. And so the atonement is viewed as some kind of an intramural legal matter between the divine uh, family, between Jesus and the Father, whereby Jesus somehow turns away God's wrath from sinners. 
And all of this is based upon the pagan view of atonement because the sacrifices of the heathens were always to placate the wrath of the angered gods. It's quite common as you travel in the Middle East as well as in the Central America and South America uh, to see the remains of temples and pyramids upon which human sacrifices were performed in order it was believed that one could appease the anger of the gods with man by giving them human blood. The same view is imposed upon the atonement within the Bible. Somehow, God's anger against sinners has to be appeased, and God is bloodthirsty, so he takes it out on his son. Christ died to reconcile the Father unto us is the idea. It is the pagan idea of sacrifice applied to Christianity. God, they think, was angry. He must pour forth his wrath upon someone. If upon man, it would eternally damn him as he deserved, but this would interfere with God's plans and purposes in creating the world, so this must not be. And yet, God must not be cheated out of his vengeance. For this reason, he pours it forth upon Christ. The man may go free. So when Christ died, he was slain really by the wrath and the anger of the Father. Well, this is paganism. The true idea of the atonement makes God and Christ equal in their love, and in one purpose in saving humanity. The life of Christ was not the price paid to the Father for our pardon, but that life was the price which the Father paid to manifest his loving power so to bring us to that repentant attitude of mind that he could pardon us freely. And so John tells us, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his Son to be the propitiation or the sacrifice for our sins. And who needs the propitiation? Who needs the appeasement? Who's the angry party here? Is it God who's angry with us? No, we're the ones who are angry with him. We need the propitiation. We need the sacrifice. We need the revelation of God's love at Calvary in order to reconcile our alienated hearts to him. He loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. We need the atonement, the at one with him, not the other way around. Romans 3.25 says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. Whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. We see the blood, we see the cost that Jesus has paid going to the equivalent of the second death for us, and our hearts are brought at one with him as a result of that great revelation of love. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Whose wrath? His wrath? No, our wrath against him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so Mrs. White supported the view that man was reconciled to God by the death of Christ, not God reconciled to man. The Father loved us. In Steps to Christ, that beautiful little book on page 15, we read, 
But this great sacrifice was not made in order to create in the Father's heart a love for man, not to make him willing to save. No, no. The Father loves us not because of the great propitiation, the sacrifice, but he provided the propitiation because he loves us. Now that's a revelation. That's a reinvention, a true imaging of the Father in heaven. And so here's exactly what John 3.16 means to say to us. God so loved the world, that is, every individual, personal sinner in it, that he gave his only begotten Son for us, which means that he loved us more than he loved his Son, who chooses to believe in him should not go on perishing within himself, but should have eternal life, not an extension of our present worldly and often painful existence, but the kind of life that Jesus has in his resurrection life. We've all heard about how sly and cunning and evil Satan is, and have you known how he has tried to literally suck the life out of this greatest verse of the Bible, John 3.16? And there is a time-honored doctrine that is often labeled as orthodox that denies that God ever had a son before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he became a father only at the time that Jesus was born. The idea is that God simply agreed, okay, well, I'll have a twin of me born in Bethlehem, or maybe a fellow committee member to come to earth and be sacrificed. Yes, so generous, but a sacrifice? Would that be a sacrifice? One questions that. And when it comes to thinking about the God, the God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead is so great that my brain is like a little pea in trying to understand it all. How about you? But God is trying to say something to you and to me. According to John 3.16, Christ was always the Son of God, even from all eternity. It says in John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, it says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. There was never a time in eternity when the Son of God was not. The Muslims say that we teach that God had a wife of some sorts in order to produce this son in Bethlehem. No, 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 no. God has tried to tell us something that is beyond words, that Christ was not begotten as we beget children. The word in the Bible does not mean that, the word begotten. It means only beloved one. Only beloved one. The father's love for his son was the infinite antitype of your human love for your child. And God has permitted us, unworthy humans, to have the experience of being parents in order that we might understand just a little trifle in our hearts 
the rending agony that the infinite Father's heart went through when it came time for him to give his only begotten Son to this world. The sacrifice was made in eternity, and it was and it is an infinite sacrifice. John 3.16 does not make sense if we don't see it that way. And a pea-sized brain and heart like mine can at least begin to appreciate it a little bit. Literally, it means, only begotten means the only one, the solitary one. Psalm 25, 16 presents a use of it. It has reference to an only child. It's used in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 20, verse 2 rather. And it's a very interesting usage. It says that God said to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son, thy Yaqid son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And then in verse 16 it says, I swore, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine Yaqid, thine only son, The father's love for the world is illustrated in Abraham's love for his only Yaqid, his Isaac, who represents the only begotten son given for the world. In fact, it seems to me that God gave this experience to Abraham and Isaac as a prophecy of John 3.16. prophecy of John 3.16. And so, just as Isaac was the darling of Abraham, his father, so our Father in heaven, the darling of our Father in heaven, was the Son, Jesus Christ. I was reading a story about a family, a mission family that were on a little holiday and on a picnic, and they went out to the cataracts where the water was rushing through the channel and over a, a falls, and uh, it, it was swift-moving uh, river. And they were picnicking on the river's edge, and they had a blanket spread out, and they brought some food, and they had some games they were enjoying as a family. And the one darling four-year-old daughter was sitting on the river bank with her feet dangling into the cold water. And the parents, you know, were dutiful. They were keeping their eye on her while they were uh, engaged in their activities. And uh, all of a sudden, mother looked up and said, where's Margie? And she wasn't there anymore. And so quickly, mother and dad jumped up, and they ran over to the riverbank, and they, and they looked, and they looked, and they looked. And Margie was gone. And then pretty soon, Dad saw this little four-year-old hand breach the water. And he quickly rushed over and grabbed that little hand and pulled little Margie out of certain drowning. Their darling one. And obviously, Marjorie survived. Evidently, the water was so cold when she fell into it that it took her breath away, and so she didn't inhale any water into her lungs, and so she was spared. The Lord spared her life. She 
was shocked by the water and just stopped breathing. And the Lord spared her life. God gave his darling one, his Yaqid, his only begotten son, to this world. And so it's a revelation of the Father's love, isn't it? A child cannot create his father, but the way the Bible is speaking, the child, and I'm speaking about me and I'm speaking about you, if you have had a bad uh, picture of a father in your life and you are carrying a terrible image of father in your mind and in your heart and bitterness, I want to assure you that a part of appreciating the cost of what Jesus paid as a sacrifice for your sins on the cross, part of that is to see a new picture of God the Father, to give you a new vision of your true heavenly Father. And you say, well, that's not possible. I don't know how that can be done. You just don't know all of the baggage that I'm carrying around from my previous experience with Father. Dear friends, the gospel can heal you and give you a new picture of your true heavenly Father if you see and appreciate the cross of Jesus Christ and what he paid for you there. And he can heal your wounds experienced through the Father, your earthly Father, as it were. This is part of what it means to obey the command, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All of those who are enjoy this wonderful adoption into the family of God are experiencing a new vision, a new revelation of who the Father is. And the Holy Spirit is personally present with every individual to make this a thrilling experience that you can personally share with the Father in heaven. You can do this privately with the Father in heaven. Your personal memories of your earthly father may be deficient, but the heavenly father is not limited by your personal individual deficiencies. He has a road, he has a route direct to your individual human heart, and he invites you to believe in him and in the fullness of his agape. You may say, it's impossible, I've gone too far You cannot have gone too far because the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior waiting to be recognized up until you draw your last breath. And if illness has caused weakness in your thinking ability, it is not too late for you. Cry unto him out of the depths, the psalmist says, for there is forgiveness with him that he might be reverenced. And so here is the Lord Jesus Christ the Savior of the world. He's opening up the gates of the new Jerusalem so that all who would might enter in and no one is denied, says the song. Thank Him. Humble your heart. The only way that you can thank Him is to humble your heart because the proud heart cannot thank Him for it. And say amen and enter in, leaving all of your pride behind. And the Lord Jesus says to each one of us personally in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That's personal. That's individual. 
That's intimate love, not a cold, electronic thing. It is the love of a Father, our Heavenly Father, as intimate, as close, as personal as any earthly Father's love can be, only far more. Some dear people feel that they have never known an earthly father's love. What can the dear Lord do for them? I knew a fellow one time in college like that. He was having a very bitter time because of his relationship with his father. But truthfully, none of us have ever had a human father who could perfectly portray the love of our heavenly father for us. And so let no one be the least discouraged if you have never known of an earthly father's love. Kneel on your knees. Make a choice to believe what you cannot see. He will respond to your prayer. The dear heavenly father will not forsake you or neglect your prayer. He's already loved you, the text says, with an everlasting love. Now ask him to grant you the spiritual eyesight, the discernment to recognize the gift he's already given you. If his love is everlasting, that means that he loved you while you were still in your mother's womb. He was working even then with that love. Now, this is a true story. Dates back to the British rule in India. The Pamban Bridge is situated uh, in one of the provinces of India. At the entrance of the bridge, you can see a picture of a weeping man holding some human body parts close to his chest. You see, the bridge was built during the British rule in India, and it was constructed in such a way that the center portion of the bridge could be lifted with the help of huge wheels with counterbalances on it so that the ships could pass easily under the bridge. And on the bridge, there are roads and rail tracks and laid for trains and other vehicles to pass, And a middle-aged man was appointed to roll the wheels up and down when the ships arrived. And once he saw a train slowly approaching, and while he was pulling back the bridge after a ship quietly passed beneath, he had to pull back quickly or else there would be a fatal accident and passengers on the train would die going into the river. Well, at that time, his nine-year-old son came with his lunch. And when he saw his father struggling with the wheels. He kept the lunch box down. He started helping his father to roll the wheels to put the bridge back in place. And suddenly, the son's fingers got caught inside the wheel. And he started crying out. And at this time, if the father tried to save his son, the bridge could not be put back in proper place. So he had no other option but to ignore his son's cry. And with all of his strength, he kept on rolling the wheels to put the bridge down. And as the wheels rolled on, his son slowly started slipping away into the huge gears of the machine. Tears rolled down his father's cheeks, but he ignored his son's cry. If he tried to save him, the train will surely fall into the sea with all of the people in it. Slowly, the whole boy's body fell into the machine. And his father could hear his bones breaking one by one until a loud sound in his head cracked. The train with the passengers slowly rolled on the rails without knowing what had happened. And though this man performed his duty honestly, he lost his only cherished son. 
With extreme lamentation, he pulled out his son's body parts from the machine and he held them close to his chest and he cried bitterly. The British government honored him greatly. And in memory of this incident, they placed the picture of the son holding, or the father holding the son's body parts as a memorial at the entrance to the bridge. Dear friends, that's a pretty adequate picture of our Father's love for you and me. He loved you more than he loved his Son. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.